and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my friend and cohort, my co-pilot, down the path of the contrary, Julio Oliveira. Julio, this is the first episode of our podcast in a post-Will Smith slapping Chris Rock world. <laughs> Man, right down to it. No, uh, no preamble. We're gonna get to it right away. Now, this is just to to set the table. The we're recording the day after the Oscars. Yes, and obviously, unless you live under a rock or on Mars uh, with your fingers and your ears, I'm sure you've heard of what happened uh, with Will Smith and Chris Rock. It's uh, it'll definitely go down as an Oscar moment, and it really seems to have been a cultural happening for a lot of people. So. In the new world, we face bravely, but also uh, to continue our battle, our uh, war against Rotten Tomatoes. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, what, what is the tomato meter score on that slap? Oh, man. Seems pretty divided. I, I think it's a 50%. Yeah, it's a gray area. That's one of those I'd be more curious to see the audience score. <laughs> you know, it'd be one of those that has like, you know, a 98% critic uh, on the tomato meter, but then the audience score is like 40%. Yeah, uh, just review bombed one way or the other. All the Chris Rock fans, all the Will Smith fans, all the uh, Summer of Soul fans, they're just mad that the, all the drama overshadowed other wins. Uh, all the white people that figured out a way to make it about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, cultural references out of the way there. It was bound to come up sooner or later, and it just I didn't feel there was any point in this movie where we could do that. We got it out of the way, Alex. Now yes, we, we can did. focus on uh, on a completely different world, a completely different uh, tone. Tone. I was gonna say era too. What's this movie? Late nineties, early nineties, uh, ninety four. Yeah. I guess that would technically qualify as the mid nineties, but you know how I feel that there's a a very uh, dramatic separation of the different time periods of the nineties. But yeah, as you mentioned, we're here today to discuss the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Uh, directed and written by Stephen Elliott, released in the United States on August 10th of 1994, starring Terrence Stamp, Hugo Weaving, and Guy Pierce, also Bill Hunter as Bob. Julio, this came to us from one of our patrons, is that correct? Yes, this is uh, yet another patron effort to get us to say nice things about Australian movies. And this patron is Australian. Uh, it's Ryan, who uh, has given us some questionable material in the past. He's the man behind the, the Hancock episode. Um, he is. Yeah, Hancock was a rotten movie. We had to say nice things about it. Uh, Priscilla is a fresh movie, so we're going to say not so nice things about it in this episode in Contrarian's Corner. And then, you know, we'll see what happens later. But uh, yeah, that's that's Ryan. He He's using his patron powers for, for good or for evil. I, I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah, and just to set the table here, uh, as far as our unfortunate <laughs> contrarians versus Australian film <laughs> so far, it was uh, Getting Square, starring Sam Worthington, and then also from another patron pick was, was it called Undead? Undead, yeah. Undead. 
a zombie film from the early 2000s. But hopefully we can right the ship here today. Julio kind of already got into it, but here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. What we'll do is we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times known as Certified Fresh, and make a case for maybe why that isn't actually the case. Uh, maybe some of the acting in it is a bit overrated. Directing is a bit questionable. The story screenwriting isn't up to snuff, or maybe we just think it's overrated in general. Uh, so we'll, we'll bring that movie down a peg or two. Uh, conversely on alternating episodes, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated. We usually shoot for about 30% and below one of those nasty green splotches known as rotten. And you guessed it, we'll make a case for the film's positive merit, some of the underrated aspects of maybe the acting or, you know, some good storytelling or just plot devices that you don't usually see, just accenting uh, all of its positives that we can, all in an effort to say that, you know, art is subjective. You can be as over the moon about something as you want to be or as cynical about something as you choose to be. And that also Rotten Tomatoes uh, doesn't always tell the whole story. A lot of people think it can be the end all be all, but there's there's layers to this shit. Uh, but that all comprises the first half of our podcast, which we refer to as Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie we're covering, they just have to check out part two. That's correct. Part two, aptly titled Real Talk, is where we tell you how we really feel about the movie. Uh, forget about the tomato meter score. This is about the Alex and Julio from the soul, from the heart score. Uh, sometimes we know how each other feels because it's a movie that even if we haven't discussed it on the show, we've talked about it off mic uh, sometimes like today it's a movie that neither of us had seen before neither of us has even shot a text to the other one about uh, so i am going to real talk the way that alex is going to real talk completely blind about my co-host feelings um, we will learn alongside you audience uh, how the other one feels and uh, and ryan i'm sure will be ready to pounce on us if we are negative about this movie of his. Uh, although, actually, I don't know, Alex. Uh, Ryan sent us an email that is to be mm-hmm. read during Real Talk, where he, I guess, goes on about how he feels. So so on Real Talk, you'll also find out how the person that demanded this movie feels about, uh, about it. All right. Well, time to hop aboard Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Uh I watched this movie on Tubi as it's free streaming on there. Julio, is that also where you checked it out? Yes, Tubi. We're, uh, <laughs> speaking of going back to the times of yore, you know, back when commercials were a thing that you had to deal with. I, I, I mean, I'll I'll take it. Tubi is free, mm-hmm. and uh, the quality uh, is usually pretty good as far as you know audio and video, and you just have to sit through a few commercials every now and then. Just. The biggest appeal is just how uh, eclectic the selection of movies is, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is great because you can find something like this movie, which is kind of a you know, uh, 90s cult classic. Is that what, what you would call it? Uh, you know, you don't see that anywhere else. Yeah. Again, I always, for some reason, cult classic denotes like the movie may not be that good. I think it definitely this movie has a cult following, but uh, as its tomato meter score shows, it's certified fresh at 96%, and I believe it um, won an Academy Award for Best Costume Design. So definitely held in high regard. But yes, it's um, you know it's not in the zeitgeist of your Star Wars or something that's constantly quoted and utilized in pop culture. So I guess, yeah, you could say a cult following. I mean, it's not what any of its protagonists is known for. Like all three of those actors are just iconic figures from other franchises basically yeah if you watch uh the Maytry before the <laughs> this you'd be like the hell is agent smith doing but julio 96 percent of rotten tomatoes means the critics were shitting their britches over it what uh what were you able to find what were the reviews saying so not a whole lot of reviews i mean it makes sense it's a movie from the 90s it's an australian movie uh, and uh so that partly explains this super high score 96 percent, because there's only about i don't know 30 something reviews but out of those i think only one of them is is rotten so you know the percentage makes sense mm. so here's a few fresh quotes from the run tomatoes website uh candace russell from the south florida sun sentinel says outrageous and giddy the main characters in this movie make the adventures of priscilla queen of the desert a summer entertainment that won't soon be forgotten uh so this was a summer release uh yeah or- august okay 
It was like that tail end of the summer when uh, where you feel like taking chances. Well, it looks like it premiered at Cannes uh, on May 15th in 1994, Cannes Film Festival, and then uh, had a wider release on August 10th. Yeah, the end of the summer where you know you're going to have to go back to school soon, so fuck it, might as well do something <laughs> fun. Let's do the, the R-rated road trip uh, movie about drag queens and uh, Australia. Mm. <laughs> the Outback. Um, David Parkinson from Radio Times says, Tremendous fun with a deliciously sugar-coated message. This is the closest the cinema has come to a proper musical in years. What was the situation in 1994 for him to say this? This movie has musical numbers, but I don't think that it's a musical. I would not consider it a musical. I know it's been adapted to uh, in some theater productions and whatnot, but it's like lip syncing and shit, which I mean, doesn't constitute a musical to me. Nobody breaks into original songs <laughs> or even, yeah. you know, covers of songs that are meant to move the story. Like, uh, what's that terrible musical with Tom Cruise and Alec Baldwin, Catherine Zeta-Jones? Is that Rock of Ages? Yes, Rock of Ages. You know, all the songs there are covers. They're not original songs. But still, it's like they break into song to advance the plot. Here, it's just, no, they put on a show and they sing. That's different. But again, you know, maybe 94 was just like, when it came to musicals, it was like a desert. Like the <laughs> the Australian outback that they're traveling on. In this movie, it's just there was nothing. So when you saw something like like Priscilla, like hey, at least they're trying. Let's call it a musical. Best original song in 1994. Yeah, fuck off, man. The Lion King came out in 94. That's a hell of a musical. <laughs> Best original song was "Can You Feel the Love Tonight" by Elton John. Yeah, I guess they don't count Disney because it's animation. <laughs> That's and uh, yeah, three of the songs uh, there was what looks to be five nominees. Three of them were from The Lion King. Uh, one of them. Look what love has done from Junior, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, <laughs> and make up your mind from the paper that was by Randy Newman. So there you go. Well, there you go. It's not. It's not a, music. Yeah, it's not the best song category unless you have Randy Newman there. I would have Agreed. liked to see a, a Randy Newman original in this movie. Hopping on Priscilla, going down the street. <laughs> uh, Guy Pierce just singing to a. Uh, to Agent Smith. Well, I can't let you. <laughs> I can't let you throw yourself away. Uh, all right. Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian says, It's a tremendous film that was ahead of its time on LGBT issues and in some ways is ahead of ours. Uh, I don't want to like spend all my, my Contreras Corner arguments here, but I, I felt that this movie was a little bit of a, a woke flex from Australia, you know what I mean? Like it, it really, it feels, it's a little bit of a propaganda of like, look how open-minded we are here in in the land of Oz compared to the rest of you uh, troglodytes in the rest of the world. So when he says that it's ahead of its time, I mean, yeah, almost like to a to a fantasy level of, of how far ahead of its time it is. Like how uh, it's almost. Yeah, I'm pretty like sure America has regressed since. This. <laughs> yes. But Australia, as depicted in this movie, it was just, they are so, like, open-minded and tolerant in almost every... How dare they? <laughs> yeah. It's like Stephen Elliott, the, the director, he just, his mission in life was to put the rest of the world to shame when it came to uh, LGBT issues. And and I guess he succeeded, because we're still talking about his movie more than 20 years after Almost 30 years later. Almost 30 years later, yeah. So anyway, those were the quotes. There's more to come in the second half. But for now, I think uh, uh, we can safely uh, drive into Contrarian's Corner. It's a road trip, Alex. It's a road trip movie. It is. I've always wanted or wondered, excuse me, what it would be like to go on a road trip like that on a big fucking Greyhound-style bus. You know, a big one, not not road trip where it's the, the short yellow one, but a real... Uh, almost Winnebago type thing. I'm not driving that shit though. There's no way. <laughs> You're just standing on the on the roof with yes. your with your costume just flowing in the wind. Uh, yeah, yeah, not not unlike the guitarists in uh, Mad Max. That symbol <laughs> that the what are those guys called? Is it Doof Warrior? 
Is that yeah. what it is? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. What a title. So, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, using our good friend Wikipedia here to kind of get us going, get the tires in motion. Anthony Tick Belrose, Hugo Weaving, using the drag pseudonym uh, Mitzi Del Bra, is a Sydney-based drag queen who accepts an offer to perform his drag act at the Lassiter's Hotel Casino Resort, managed by his estranged wife, Marion, in Alice Springs, a remote town in Central Australia. After persuading his friends and fellow performers, Bernadette Bassinger, Terrence Stamp, a recently bereaved transgender woman, and Adam Whitley, Guy Pierce, a flamboyant and obnoxious younger drag queen who goes under the drag name Felicia Jolly Goodfellow to join him, the three set out for a four-week run at the casino in a large tour bus, which Adam christens Priscilla Queen of the Desert. He even breaks a bottle of champagne like you would on a new boat. All right, so Hugo Weaving and Guy Pierce, we get right away, and then uh, we see the funeral for Terrence Stamp, Bernadette's uh, partner. Was, uh, he went by Trumpet, and we're kind of throwing all these characters pretty quickly, and I guess they know each other from the circles they run in because they all agree to go on this cross-country road trip pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, they, they know each other from showbiz, I guess, and uh, Australian showbiz, so you know, it's not like Hollywood. It's just much smaller. They know who uh, Sam Worthington is. They just decide not to invite him. <laughs> uh, this is, uh, you know, we watched we watched this movie with with today's eyes. So when you were watching it, were you looking at Agent Smith, General Zod, and Ed Exley from L.A. Confidential, or what were your <laughs> were your reads of these three main characters? I was just trying to watch it for what it was. My main thing was that uh, Guy Pierce is like distractingly jacked compared to the other two. Like, there's a couple shots of like his back where it's just like, dude, who told him to cycle up for this movie? And he makes Hugo Weaving and Terrence Stamp look like, you know, fucking minuscule in comparison. It's, I guarantee at some point on the set of this movie, they dropped the Jason Lee line from Almost Famous where they told Guy Pierce his looks have become a problem. <laughs> Yeah, he he definitely comes across as the the young buck that's trying to make a name for himself uh, in the film industry. You know, like not in the context of the movie, but as in like the actor Guy Pierce is like, this is my chance. I heard that they give uh, embrace for these for these type of performances. <laughs> so <laughs> let me let me do my best. Uh, it is a little distracting. It's also kind of like the the. I don't know. I I appreciate it. Out of the three, I appreciated that Terrence Stamp was playing, uh, not just playing against type, but also playing against stereotype in a way. He's kind of like the, the the one that's mourning. So of course he's not as as out there as flamboyant as the other two. So instantly you're like, oh, this is a character I haven't seen before. Uh, mm -hmm. Now Guy Pierce, on the other hand, he is exactly what I would expect. You know, like I thought he was gonna be Priscilla. It was such a disappointment when I found out that Priscilla was the bus. Because I'm like, I can't wait to meet this this queen of the desert. And it turns out that no, Priscilla is just the bus. But yeah, he's he's just so big and loud. And I was like, that's that's just I don't know. Maybe it was a little more uh, original back in the mid '90s. But he he just felt like something I'd seen before. And unfortunately, he is there the entire movie. He's like Jar Jar Binks. Like once you introduce him like he doesn't go away he just stays and just it's obnoxious through the entire movie he doesn't even have an arc like it's not like he learns to be less obnoxious he's just a pain in the ass the entire time and then i guess hugo weaving is kind of like in the middle i i had a hard time like figuring him out because sometimes he seems like he was really bummed and neurotic and just worried about stuff and then there were times where he was just like like guy pierce <laughs> he just didn't care about anything yeah, what's your experience with Hugo Weaving up until this point? You know, he's kind of one of those background actors, uh, big parts in some very significant science fiction franchises. Um, thoughts on him being used as a leading man here? I mean, I think that this this proved why it hasn't happened since then. <laughs> I mean, he is he's fine. I think that this is young Hugo Weaving learning. What, what what his register was. And I think that leading man wasn't it because, you know, he's so easily overshadowed by the other two. Like, when I think Hugo Weaving, of course, Agent Smith, uh, he's also one of the elves in Lord of the Rings. 
he is V in V for Vendetta, which I guess it's like the closest you could say that he had to to being a protagonist. Also, but even then, you know, Natalie Portman is carrying that movie, and he's just kind of the the creepy guy with the mask. Uh, isn't that a Andrew Garfield movie, the war movie, Hacksaw Ridge? He plays mm-hmm, his dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's 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 mostly a character actor, and this is one of those movies that is a, a bit of an experiment, right? Like, what happens when you give a character actor like the spotlight, and and the answer is uh, Guy Pierce takes over. <laughs> he he does well, but I always felt like he was never as interesting because the other two people in this road trip have taken the extremes, so he was always kind of the 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 boring middle. Right, he was not as over the top annoying as Guy Pierce, and he was not as melancholy and self reflective as as Terrence Stamp, and yet he is the one that has like the most shit going on. Apparently, it's just that we never really, I don't know I never found him as captivating. Did you Did you feel the same way? Who was your favorite uh, drag queen in in this road trip? I feel that Guy Pierce's character has the closest thing to an arc, so it's easier to kind of get invested in it. But like you said, he's a bit grating. Um, you know, the, the family dynamic with Hugo Weaving is fascinating. That's kind of the first big reveal of the movie is when he announces to the, the other two that he's married. I think it literally causes the bus to come to a screeching halt. <laughs> um, I think there is something very fascinating about the Bernadette character uh, that I feel not just Terrence Stamp's ability, but that whole character. And, you know, the the moments, you know, later in the movie, we get like a dinner scene where we get the curtain peeled back just a little bit about Bernadette's childhood and, you know, uh, that she doesn't speak to her parents anymore. And it's, it's fucking awful. And that's more fascinating than some of the stuff that's going on on screen. So I feel like Bernadette has the, the most interesting story and cause she's very comfortable with herself and, you know, what her life's become uh, in essence, it seems that way. But then like you get these moments that she discusses, you know, potentially wanted to have kids and then having to never think about it and that type of thing. I feel her story would have been more fascinating than us following uh Tick's story. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mean, and it's not like Terrence Stamp. I mean, when, same question, right? When you think of Terrence Stamp, you don't think leading actor. You also think of mostly no. supporting roles, right? He's the self-improvement guru and yes, man. Like, has he ever topped that role? I'm not sure. Like, it's like <laughs> General Zod and Yes Man. Uh, that's that's the two big ones. Uh, I know he was the lead in the Lie Me, but that's one of those uh, Steven Soderbergh movies that Soderbergh made in between blockbusters. You know, it's like Ocean's please 11. don't forget that he was he was Supreme Chancellor Finnis Valorum. So don't forget about that, please. <laughs> How could I forget? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, 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 so so it's not like he is uh, taking attention from Hugo Weaving by being a mega star, right? It's not like they cast Robert Downey Jr. as Bernadette, and and so you can't help but be intrigued by <laughs> yeah. him. No, it's like they're, like they're all kind of like on the same level, uh, all three, right? I, I think at that time Guy Pierce was, I'm assuming, mostly unknown. Hugo Weaving also, and then Terrence Stamp was not known for for somebody that would lead that would lead a movie, so. Having established that that kind of a playing field, like even playing field, yeah, I, I think it becomes clear that there is a bit of a uh, failure, like that that Hugo Weaving is lacking a little bit as when it comes to being the protagonist. Uh, you're right, like the elements are there as far as the backstory and everything that should be pretty intriguing, but he can't compete with his two uh, with his two road trip mates. So this movie's not quite like you know semi pro or Moneyball, which we're coming off of, where you can kind of bit by bit break down the the plot and what happens. Because this is more just like a road trip movie. We visit these towns, we run into these people. Uh, you know, there's these different happenings. So, Julio, if you're fine with it, I think we may just hit more on kind of the stops as opposed to the plot. Because I think we've done a pretty good job of outlining what the plot of this movie is until we get to the end, which obviously we will. Um, but. You know, along the way, I think the first stop they make is some small town off the beaten path where they walk in. And, of course, they're done up to the nines in their outfits and um, they get all the looks and told they can't drink there. And it, uh, Bernadette tells a joke about some homely looking woman in the bar. And it turns out that just booze solves everything because they all start drinking together. And yep. But then it's weird because um, 
like they get drunk and then Adam Guy Pierce calls Bernadette Ralph and they go back to their hotel and like Tick just like passes out while Bernadette's just beating the shit out of Guy Pierce in the background. <laughs> it's like what are the dynamics of these friendships or what's going on? Because that never really comes back up. I know it's a joke that Guy Pierce calls her Ralph throughout the course of the movie, but you think he would have learned to keep his mouth shut after getting his ass beat? Yeah, but that also speaks to another kind of weird thing uh, with this movie, which is that there is. Um, I mean, I understand it's tricky, right? The the the, the subject matter is uh, is tricky in the sense that you have something that is joyous in a way, which is like the performances and the the you know the life of three drag queens as far as the performances go, and that is just fun and musical and in in just so entertaining, and then. It carries, you know, side by side, you're carrying the the potential, always the potential for things to turn ugly because of discrimination and bigotry and just homophobia and all that, right? And so I kept waiting for the movie to, like, settle on one lane. I'm like, okay, are we going to be, like, really silly and just embrace the, the campiness of the drag queen lifestyle? Or are we going to be kind of just more serious and, and explore the difficulties of being a drag queen and it just which every time that there's a stop it feels like they go both ways and i i don't feel like you can have it both of them right and in this first stop they have the the, the pushback from some of the locals but then they have uh but then they're embraced and then they have this moment where clearly uh bernadette's real name ralph it's like a serious button like you know it's a trauma and, and that causes him to beat up uh, guy pierce and so that's some serious shit and then the next morning they wake up and somebody has like graffiti their their van with like uh w- with slurs with homophobic slurs and oh yeah it, it is like i it, it's uncomfortable like you know it gets you laughing and then it makes you recoil in to where you almost feel weird about having laughed to begin with and i don't appreciate the mind games you know i just i i wish that the movie had just settled on just the one tone and had let me enjoy it that way like i can i'm i'm game for a movie that explores just the the drama and the difficulties of of this lifestyle and i'm also game for just a movie that's just a musical songs and and uh dances but i don't think that this director had like the I don't know a good handle on how to do both tones at the same time, and that happens on pretty much every stop. Like every stop in the movie is like that, where they arrive, there some people treat them badly, then other people treat them well, and then they move on to the next stop. Where are you blokes from? Uranus. Oh, good. <laughs> After the um, yeah, their van gets graffitied. Not the the content is obviously bad and reprehensible. The homophobia that's rampant. Uh, but Guy Pierce gets some really cool looking paint, and he's going to paint it up, and it, it just kind of happens in the background. You would think that's like prime real estate for a really good musical number. <laughs> is Guy Pierce painting up the the tour bus that they have? But not to be. They he says it's lavender, but all the shots throughout the rest of the movie makes it look like it's pink. Is that just me, or am I colorblind? Uh, no, I think our TVs were calibrated the same way because I also saw it as pink. Uh, you're right. This this is where uh, Doctor Teeth and Electric Mayhem, you know, come in with an yes. original. But no, it doesn't happen. It's just it's just more shots of uh, Guy Pierce flexing his his biceps. You can't take no for an answer. I don't know what no in this case would be, but you get the point. Well, because. Uh, 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 I think around this time was when uh, Terrence Stamp is trying to get a ride, like trying to get somebody to give him a ride to a mechanic because the, the bus breaks down like, I don't know, 20 times during this movie. It just becomes a, a it's a crutch, right? Like mm-hmm. we uh, we introduced the character of Bob just because they need someone that rides along with them to fix the van or the, excuse me, the tour <laughs> bus as they go along. Yeah. The the two things that happen time and again, every time that the, the riders run out of ideas, it's like, well, let's have the bus break down. And also... Let's have them break into song. It's during this kind of the middle of the movie where Stephen Elliott wants to make sure that you all know he went to film school because we get kind of these just random non sequitur shots of the desert, close ups of bearded dragons, uh, <laughs> artistic shots of the sun setting. 
<laughs> he needed to he needed to make sure that he added a star to this movie via Roger Ebert or whomever <laughs> that was gonna applaud the cinematography. See, uh, the, the joke's on him though, because that that just dated his movie. Because we're we have the internet now, so we know what the Australian outback is like, and we know it's just deadly. So every time that he kind of made a point to let us know that they were out here in the desert, it I instantly thought, why are they still alive? You know, in my mind, and Australian listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, but the internet tells me that I'm not. If you find yourself stuck in the middle of the Australian desert, that's it. You're done. Unless you are, you know, Aboriginal. Like, that's it. You, you have no business because there's all Game sorts over, of... man. Yeah. All sorts of Australian beasts will come and, and just rip you apart. And that never happens here. They keep breaking down in the middle of the desert. And they're okay. They can just, you know... They have a barbecue on the side of the road and wait until the next time that their bus is fixed and then they keep going. It, it was just so unrealistic. And I guess you could get away with that in the 90s because if you didn't live in Australia, you just believed that you just thought that that's how it was. And I guess the people in Australia, they were like, oh, that's just funny, but it's clearly a fantasy. It, this is science fiction. As they're stranded, they come across a. Would it be fair to call this a group of vagrants that are just kind of have their campgrounds? Uh, it, it's quick and they kind of just trade music back and forth and then end up sinking because one of the guys has a didgeridoo while they do one of their dancing routines. I, I mean, I thought they were uh, Australian natives. Is that the right word? You know, like they're the people in the cities and the little towns. And then these are like the the real Australians, like finding a Native American when you're on a road uh, trip. I know? see. I, I think, see. I think they were like Native Australians. Uh but they, yeah, they just get down to it. They just party. They they even, uh, in a way, induct one of the the members of the tribe uh, into drag queendom, right? Don't they get him, right. like all made up? And uh, is this uh, I will survive? Is this where they do I will survive? Uh, yeah, I believe so. That's a banger of a song. Yeah, they sing it more than once, and every time it came up. I was like, Tony Clifton did it better. I'm sorry. <laughs> First, I was afraid. I was putrefied. Kept thinking I could never live without you by my side. So close to dead center of this movie, we get the reveal that Guy Pierce carries around a piece of fecal matter from one of the members of the band ABBA. What you is know, this, Madam Sandler movie? Yeah, I was about to say, it tries to take kind of this thinking man's approach to a poop joke, and it's just like, <laughs> what the fuck is going on? It They set it up for like five minutes. You know, mm-hmm. it's not even, I don't know, you know, it's like, just just get it out of the way, just for, you know, for the people in the people that like that sort of stuff. But no, they, you're right, the thinking man's approach, because they, Terrence Stamp is acting through this joke like he's doing Shakespeare, and... And Guy Pierce is taking his sweet time delivering the punchline. And then when the punchline happens, it's not even one of those things where like, all right, well, at least give me a payoff that's big, right? To justify, to acknowledge the ridiculousness of what just happened. But instead, mm-hmm. no, Terrence Stump plays it really low key and he's just still holding that thing and going like, are you telling me this is Abba shit? And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's the end of the, of the gag. I expect that seen to take 10 minutes probably in the american remake easily all right so they finally come across uh bob who we mentioned earlier he's a mechanic there it's from a small town that they arrive to i think they get a tow there it's like one of the closest towns there but yeah we meet bob and he takes a liking to the three of them pretty quickly he has a wife it's not like a mail order affair but i I think the implication was that she was a prostitute that he ended up marrying during a drunken binge. Is that kind of what you got? Uh, yeah. Well, eventually, when we get a flashback that explains it and explains it, it's like in quotation marks. Uh, I, I think that's it. That, that It's not because they, the, the, the trio of drag queens, they call her a mail-order bride before they know the story. And then at some point later, he explains, and yeah, you just see him waking up next to her, and she's like, we're married now. Take me. Take me home. Um, this might be the low point of the movie, the lowest point of the movie. I found it really weird that for a for a filmmaker that has gone through such lengths to be very sensitive and in the way that he portrays three drag queens, mm-hmm. uh, 
that he suddenly would be so insensitive at portraying a Filipino woman. <laughs> because she, you know, the way that she's acting, the way that, that she's... Uh, it's like PTA took over and directed this bit. It's like on that <laughs> level of offensiveness, where she's just playing a stereotype with, the, the you know, just being really loud. And I, I don't understand what the what, what was the purpose of this. Mm-hmm. Why couldn't you just have him? If if the entire joke is that he married a prostitute, and that she is a an exotic dancer that eventually we find out can can shoot ping pong balls out of her vagina, like you don't need her to be Filipino for that. You know, she could just be another Australian woman. But for some reason, they felt the need to make her a foreigner and just depict her in a very uh, stereotypical way. It's not even like a, a one-time joke. Like she sticks around for a solid 10, 15 minutes of the movie. Refreshments! Lemonade here on Lake! That's very nice, darling. Please, go back inside. Lemonade here on Lake! Lemonade forgets! No, darling, please. I made Chuck Red Greca! Yeah, as Bob has them come in to perform their local act for the the bar there in town just a bunch of good old boys there hanging out and she comes and steals their thunder by doing a routine where she uh inserts ping pong balls in her vagina and then shoots them out at a pretty ferocious uh <laughs> pace not pace with the <laughs> uh speed acceleration velocity what have you she she shoots him out with some uh, oomph behind him. Well, the pace, I mean, you're right. The pace is also ferocious, though, because she does, like, three in a row. So I, d- I d- couldn't figure out, like, if she had time to reload in between shoots. Like, So Jesus. is the implication that was that she had stuck, like, three there at once and then shoots, like, you know, consecutively? Loaded up. Yeah. I don't know. They, they seem impressed. Hugo Weaving, uh, Guy Pierce, and Terrence Stamp, they are in awe. And you would imagine they've seen some shit because, you know, they're in show business. It's kind of a, a a weak move that they end up asking Bob to join them instead of asking his wife. Because <laughs> she would be more of an asset to the act. Yeah, they essentially ask him to come, though, because he fixes their tour bus and they start it up and it breaks down in like 10 seconds. So instead of like finding another means of travel, they're like, hey, just come with us and fix it every 10 seconds when it breaks down. It helps because Bob is apparently smitten. With uh, with Terrence Stamp. That was my next note. Bob and Bernadette. There's clearly uh, some chemistry in the air between those two, which, you know, I appreciate. It's kind of your unconventional love story. So I like the whole Bernadette character. It feels more interesting than what's going on in our main focus, be it uh, Adam or um, Tick. Bob had watched. He was a big fan of Superman, too. <laughs> Come to me, son of jor Kneel before Zod. I know it was the '90s, so they couldn't really go too far with this. But uh, I, I was as much as I appreciated that love story. It's such a slow burn. I mean, mm-hmm. they don't even share a kiss by the time that we get to the end of the movie. And I was hoping that we would get somewhere a little more significant by the end. The closest they get is they they sleep together outside, like just literally sleep. Literally, yeah, sleep. Yeah. Kneel before sun. Uh, one of the towns they end up at to stop overnight, uh, Bob warns Adam as he says he wants to go out and you know have a good night. And uh, unfortunately, he does some drugs back in his hotel room um, and puts on his uh, drag gear and goes out just kind of for a night in the town uh, to meet some of the locals. And um, unfortunately, this does not go well with the less tolerant folk in town who uh, one of the I guess the ringleader of him actually ends up assaulting him. And then I don't know if he was going to disfigure him or cut off his genitals or whatnot, but it's definitely a distressing scene where Bob comes in and just says, you know, stop. And so they're going to fuck him up, too. But Bernadette actually comes in and saves the day and just knees this dude in the crotch as hard as she can. It's a it's pretty baller. But like I said, this whole scene is pretty distressing. And like you had called out earlier, it's just a. an inconsistency in pacing and tone that kind of throws you for a loop for the hour and 45 minutes this movie lasts. Yeah, it's like we're having a good time. We think that we're in for for some shenanigans when uh, Guy Pierce starts doing drugs and gets stressed. I'm like, okay, this is going to be funny. And uh, they even sell it at the beginning as as a joke, right? Because, uh, uh, well, Adam is getting in trouble with these guys. Uh, Hugo Weaving and Terrence Stamp are having dinner. 
and they're talking and you know they're having kind of like a, a serious conversation but mm-hmm. they you see in the background you see adam run like pass by running and then the mob chasing him and that is not set up as a scary thing or a dramatic thing that that is a comedy shot you know it's like these two guys yeah. are having like a, a serious conversation and in the background you see their friend like running for his life with the mob chasing him and it was like are we doing is it a comedy or not you know because what follows is not a comedy at all you're right like they beat him up and they uh they're about to like do something whatever it is they were gonna do it was clearly gonna be horrible and and then you know yeah they save the day but it's not it's not a comedy anymore and it just again let me enjoy this let me settle down and, and enjoy this you could have easily have had like a a, a lighter uh, funnier turn of events for this right it's like he just runs away that's it you know you just see him running and he runs away and and that's it you didn't need to get that it uh, it's just so weird because this is the one town in australia i guess in the road trip where everybody's a bigot you know other than bob mm-hmm. uh, everywhere else they go like i said they're they find people that, that are pretty pre-accepting, pre-open-minded about their lifestyle. But here, every single person in town, it's like, and they're all drinking together, geographically and uh, temporally. The the MAGA movement didn't exist yet, but <laughs> if it had, they were missing the red hats there. Yeah, it's during this time too. We find out that uh, we don't find out he has a son. We don't find that out till the end. But Tick never split from his wife. There's, you know, they say it's strange, but they're still technically married. But, you know, they take care of the business that they need to. They uh, take reprimands at him pretty hard, harshly, I should say, about the drug use and get probably the best scene of acting from Guy Pierce here where he just breaks down in tears. Uh, but then it's back on the road. Guy Pierce has his jaw, uh, I guess, the equivalent of tape shut, wired shut here. He can't talk for a few days or so. But, um, they eventually reach their destination of Alice Springs in the Lassiter Hotel Casino Resort, uh, where Tick and Marion are reunited. And this is the big reveal that he has an eight-year-old son, uh, Benjamin, who he hasn't seen for many years. But, man, the Marion was raising this kid right because he's just immediately, you know, one, shakes hands like a gentleman, you know, puts his <laughs> hand out and introduces himself. And upon seeing he has a kid, I, it's um, Bernadette faints, right? Yeah. Adam's a bit curious about the whole situation and he's confused by the kid because this little boy just seems to have a better grasp on the world than he's used to. And he's like, I think he even says something, you know, your dad doesn't like girls, which is kind of a weird thing to kind of lead with. But the kid's just like, yeah, so what? You want to go play with Legos? And Guy (laughs) Pierce doesn't really know how to respond to it. So I think Guy Pierce's cynicism and um, lack of faith in people. Uh, kind of came back to surprise him in this particular example. But even when Tick talks to him, the kid's like, it seems like it was built up that it was going to be this big, like, struggle or moment of explanation and trying to, you know, uh, traverse this conversation with this little boy. But the innocence of children, man, he's just like, yeah, cool, whatever. You like dudes? That's cool. You like girls? Whatever. Because I think he says, do you have a boyfriend? says no and he goes neither does mommy it's like man if we could all just if it could be that simple for everybody <laughs> yeah and see but that's that's the problem right like that the, this is very nice this is very comforting as far as uh ideology and and just our beliefs aligning with what the movie's saying but dramatically it's kind of flat because there's no conflict that you're right like i was expecting to for them to run into some sort of trouble but instead Hugo Weaving's ex-wife is the coolest person in the world. She hugs him. She's laughing. She welcomes him. She set up a a good area for him to perform. They're already sold out. Like everything goes swimmingly when they arrive. Like you would think that the the third act of the movie would be where things would get really hard, but instead, uh, everything goes well. Like the kid already knows his his deepest darkest secrets. He even goes and sees him perform. So everything is. Uh, Everything goes well, which means that everything is boring. Like, there is no real drama. Like, the, the last bad thing that truly happens in the movie is when Guy Pierce is punched by that guy, when he's assaulted by the 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 MAGA people. Uh, and that was, you know, there was still, like, 40 minutes to go in the movie. So, good intentions. I appreciate it. But it dramatically, it's, it's pretty unengaging. Agreed. How long have we been on the road? Four and a half hours. 
I've got a splitting headache already. One thing I did forget to mention that just kind of seems really superfluous in the long run is Adam had this dream to climb King's Canyon in full drag, and they do it, and it's kind of this elongated montage in the movie. And it's just kind of like, okay. And they kind of get to the top and are like, what do we do now? And I feel like that's us as the audience. <laughs> yeah. It, the entire time I was just thinking how impractical it is. It, of course, by now we've already, you know, we've firmly established that we're in a science fiction scenario. But how can you even manage to make it to the top when you're wearing those clothes? Like, that's just the wind alone would just be, you know, against you the entire time. That would just keep you from doing it. It was. It's distracting, so I, I couldn't buy it. Uh, I just knew that they had just been driven there by, I don't know, some PA that had to take care of it. <laughs> I'd forgotten that that was something that they had set up. <laughs> yeah, it, it was like a, I guess, supposed to be a payoff, but uh, didn't so, really feel like too much one. So earlier when you said that you, you felt that Adam, the guy Pierce, was the one that had the arc, it, was this what you were talking about or or his relationship with the kid when the kid kind of shows him how how good humanity can be well guy pierce's character is the one that is unsure of where he is emotionally and intellectually in this movie uh and he he's the one that i feel actually learns stuff along the way whereas the other two have um, and they're not more hardened but they have more life experience and understand and are more sure of their convictions and how they feel about things uh yeah the arc itself was more of like in from a mental perspective this here was just kind of like, okay, moving on. <laughs> yeah, I see. I felt that he was still a shithead at the end, though. Like, for, for everything that he did, like, at the end of the, the movie, he gets back on the bus, and he's still oh, the he's same still a guy. brat. Yeah. yeah. Um, like, the difference is that now he has somebody his age to play with. <laughs> somebody his mental age. Because now, now he has a, you know, now he gets to play with the kid, and the kid's more receptive to all his nonsense than Terrence Stamp was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't say he necessarily learned anything, but he he goes through a lot more. Uh he experiences more than the other two. Uh but the plan of course being that they're going to go back on tour after performing at this hotel and casino, uh we discover that Bob and Bernadette are going to stay there and work. They're going to, you know, see things through. Bernadette explains to Tick, you know, I'm not sure about it, but you you'll never know unless you try type thing. And so we set off on a two-person tour now with Tick and Adam. They bring, uh, I don't know if Marion goes, but I know they bring their son along. And, um, you know, the movie closes with them in a bar doing uh, Mamma Mia, of all songs, by ABBA. And, um, of all the trite covers <laughs> that you can roll out to close your movie. And, you know, it's pretty much the end of The Karate Kid where Hugo Weaving just looks at his son for <laughs> approval and his son just gives him a thumbs up and like a knowing nod. <laughs> um, so we get almost two back-to-back performances, right? Like the the final, the climatic performance is really, uh, it's another song. Do you know it? Like, you know, the one that they do at the at the casino. Where is the three It's like, f- finally. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't know if this was just a shortcoming of the director or they were just tired that day when they finally got it. Because it's, it's supposed to be the big set piece, right? This is what we've been building. That's the end of the movie. We yeah. don't need the, the ABBA shit. Yeah. This is what the road trip was for. We we came all the way so they could put on a show and just blow everyone's socks off. And uh, it's kind of – for one, Terrence Stamp, as much as I love him in this movie and I appreciated the deaths that he was bringing to the character – he looks like he's not enjoying himself. Did, did, did you get that feeling? Like, the, the, you know, when he's dancing, and I don't know if it's just because he's the oldest out of the three, and so he's really... You can't ask him to do, like, a full musical performance, you know, yeah. but but that's what they do here with, like, five costume changes in between, you know, during the song. So I think that's part of it. Uh, it could be also that, kind of like the dynamic that we established throughout the movie, it makes things even worse when you have it concentrated in one musical act where Guy Pierce is just so into it, so over the top, that the other two look like they're not doing well enough. 
and, and this is like a group effort. It's a musical, you know, a, a group musical number. Uh, so I think that might be part of it. The other thing is that, okay, if you're going to use Mamma Mia, then use it for this one, you know? Th- this this song is not mm-hmm. as iconic. And uh, honestly, I mean, it's not like I wanted Mamma Mia, but you could have picked something else. I mean, considering this is a road trip movie, I already had issues with the soundtrack to begin with because it wasn't like it had, it wasn't bangers back to back, right? It had, it just had a few here and there, but I would have expected a better curated soundtrack, including the song that they would play at this final performance. And then the thing that's just probably the most distracting of all is that there is, it's presented as this one single performance, right? But they keep changing clothes. Did you notice that? Like the, their costumes keep changing. Yeah, it's a, it's like a montage. But it, but it can be a montage because they. It's all supposed to be taking place in one night because it's, uh, you know, at the beginning, she... Uh, oh, you're right. Hugo Weaving's wife tells him, don't worry about the kid. He's he's in bed. And then at That's the end right. of the... Uh, yeah, at the end of the performance, the, the big reveal is that the kid was there all along and was watching him perform. And then Hugo Weaving passes so out. So it's just some really intricate costume changes here. Really <laughs> intricate wardrobe <laughs> updates. <laughs> it was the, the hook from the Muppets just pulling them aside and bringing them back in with a new set of clothes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I was all in for the idea that we could see just this major climatic musical performance. And yeah, you can have a montage and have more than one song. You know, just go all out. If you want to showcase all those costumes, which I guess is what they what they won the Oscar for. But yeah, this was a, it was a letdown. And then to close with ABBA at the end, it was just like, who cares? It does establish, though, that uh, Sydney, I guess, is just the, the one cool place in Australia. Did you feel that? Because everywhere that they've stopped was kind of yeah. like, eh. Even the casino was just like, eh. But then at the end, they come back to Sydney and everybody's really into it. Like, if you want a party, you go to Sydney. Like, I wonder how this, how this plays for Australian audiences, right? You know, do they recognize every stop the way that we usually recognize the stops in American road trip movies? Yeah, it's just like every place is bumfuck middle of nowhere. And then Sydney's, <laughs> you know, fucking... <laughs> dry land or uh <laughs> fuck i don't know what's a mythical city i'm blanking on references here um atlantis <laughs> why not <laughs> well i like dry land dry land is is a good call all right well that's it we we made it to alice springs and back mm-hmm. we lost uh terrence stamp in the in the process but somehow we gained a child it is a happy ending. <laughs> the real Priscilla were the friends we made along the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, all right, Alex, are you ready for real talk? Let us move along to real talk. We will see you in part two. I'm going! Darling, don't go. There's nothing we can't work out. You know good men. Uh, don't be silly. You want good wife? You be good husband. Darling, don't go. I don't like you anyway. You got little ding-a-ling. 